This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'm sharing stories of homicides that took place in some of the most exclusive communities in the country. Sometimes we gaze at mansions and estates we may drive past and wonder what life is like for the people who are privileged enough to live in such residences. We might imagine a life of ease and comfort in beautiful surroundings with every need provided for. But the reality is that no one is immune from life's pressures, problems, and complications, not even the very wealthy. In this episode, a couple appear to have it all, successful businesses, a large happy family, and a beautiful home. But a family tragedy would lead to the erosion of their marriage and the breakup of the family. Still, somehow, they managed to work things out and reconcile. However, one family member, out of the blue, will make an unimaginable decision that will destroy the family beyond repair. This is Chapter 2 of the series Mansion Murders, The Sachs Family Murders. It was a sunny spring morning in Huntington Beach, California. 28-year-old Nanny Lorena was cooking breakfast in the kitchen of her employers, Brad and Andra Sachs. The couple had already left for work for the day, and the nanny was attempting to cook and watch the Sachs' two youngest children at the same time. Peering through the window of the 5,400-square-foot oceanfront home, Lorena observed two-year-old Alexis outside in the backyard. She was approaching the built-in pool and spa, Grabbing 16-month-old Sabrina out of her high chair, Lorena rushed outside and tried to direct the toddler back into the house. But Alexis began to squirm and fuss, not wanting to leave the poolside. Lorena had just put the baby down to deal with Alexis and turned away for just a second when she heard a splash. Baby Sabrina had fallen into the water, knocked in by her sister as she kicked and squirmed. Lorena quickly pulled the baby out of the water but she couldn't get Sabrina to respond. In a panic, Lorena ran screaming for her husband who was inside the house. He came running and made an attempt to start CPR on the baby, but he wasn't familiar how to perform CPR on an infant and precious time was lost. Meanwhile, the nanny, hysterical, called the baby's mother Andra on her cell phone to tell her what had happened and ask for help. Andra, becoming hysterical herself, told the nanny to hang up and call 911, and quickly ran to her car to speed towards home. 911 was called, but the operator had trouble communicating with Lorena, who only spoke a little English. By the time paramedics were dispatched and arrived at the Saxes' home, the baby had not been breathing for several minutes. Sabrina died shortly after arriving at Huntington Beach Hospital. The baby's death was investigated, but the coroner determined that she had drowned as the result of a tragic accident. Brad and Andra Sachs were devastated by the loss of their daughter, and soon their grief began to form cracks in their relationship. Within six months after Sabrina's death, Brad Sachs filed for divorce, claiming that his wife was mentally unbalanced. 
He described Andra as exhibiting psychological problems that, quote, result in manic episodes that are unpredictable, unfathomable, and incapable of being rationalized, end quote. Andra then countered by saying that her husband was an irresponsible and neglectful parent who spent his time golfing and surfing. She admitted in her declaration to the court that the death of Sabrina had taken a toll on their marriage and her family as a whole. She wrote, To this day, we have had no counseling as a family, and we have never dealt with the terrible tragedy of Sabrina's death and the irreparable effect it has had on all of our lives. The fact that everything had unraveled so quickly for the couple after suffering such a loss was something neither Brad nor Andra had ever considered possible. Their life together, until that time, had seemed like a fairy tale come true. Bradford Sachs grew up in Southern California, the son of a world-class competitive surfer, Harold Hal Sachs. Brad himself surfed most of his young life until a knee injury prevented him from competing. He then turned his attention to other pursuits, golf, drumming, and business ventures. Brad Sachs founded two companies as a young man. The first was Power Design, a firm that provided backup power supply for computers. His next company, Plug-in Solutions, retrofitted electric batteries for cars. Sachs was smart and personable, and his sister Lisa would later say that everything Brad touched turned to gold. Brad met Andra Reza in 1990 at a technology convention. Andra, described by many as a human dynamo, had grown up in Maryland where her father was employed by the National Security Administration. At the age of 15, her family moved to Southern California, settling in San Diego. While Brad came from privilege, Andra's family was strictly working class. She was the youngest of five children. At one period in Andra's life, her family was short of funds, even struggling to feed the family. It was only a temporary situation, but Andra never forgot what it was like to be one of the have-nots and vowed she would never live that way again. After graduating with a business degree from Cal State Long Beach, Andra worked hard in a retail position and saved her money with an eye towards investing in her future. She heard of an opportunity to purchase an inventory of surplus computer electronics that she knew she could turn around and sell for a profit. To secure this deal, Andra knocked on the door of the company's CEO out of the blue. She parlayed her profit from that sale into other business ventures and real estate deals, purchasing property in California, Nevada, Washington State, and Florida. Within a year of meeting, Brad and Andra married. Brad converted to Judaism for his new bride. Everyone thought they made the perfect couple. They were both attractive. He, a dark-haired, tan surfer type, and she, a buxom blonde with a 1,000-watt smile. They also were both passionate about each other and about building their American dream. Together, Brad and Andra founded Flashcom in 1998. Flashcom was an early DSL service provider, catering to small businesses and home computers. By that time, Brad and Andra had four children, Miles, born in 1993, Ashton in 1994, Alexis in 1997, and Sabrina, the baby, born in 1998. By the end of their lives, Brad and Andra Sachs were said to have amassed a fortune worth $80 million through their businesses and real estate investments. All should have been perfect for the Sachs family, but then their youngest drowned in a freak accident, and it tore a hole in their hearts and their marriage. Brad filed for divorce in 1999, and an ugly battle for money and custody of their children ensued. Their relationship devolved quickly from a once-loving partnership 
to a knockdown drag out fight over assets. There was even physical altercations, and the police were called on at least one occasion. It took a year, but a judge finally signed off on their divorce after a property settlement was reached. Brad was awarded $800,000 from the sale of their house in Huntington Beach. Andra had threatened to sue both Brad and her investors to retain her majority stake of Flashcom. Flashcom's board finally settled the matter, awarding her $9 million for her portion of the company's value. But with the presence of both Andra and Brad absent from running the company, less than a year later, Flashcom went bankrupt. The last court battle between Brad and Andra regarded a restraining order Andra had filed against her estranged husband. She claimed that Brad had assaulted her in front of their children. Their appearance before a judge was scheduled for March 2000, but by April, the couple had reconciled. They moved back in together in a different home to make a fresh start. By all appearances, Brad and Andra Sachs lived together in harmony for the next 14 years. However, they never remarried. Brad and Andra Sachs had suffered what appeared to be a fatal blow to their marriage. First, the loss of their baby daughter Sabrina, and then an ugly divorce battle. But somehow, they made their way back to each other and reconciled. Some said it was for practical reasons, finances, and the children. But others described the couple as soulmates. In either case, the relationship survived and even appeared to thrive for more than a dozen years. In 2007, the Saxes added two more children to their family. Lana, age 8, and her brother Landon, age 2, were adopted from a Russian orphanage in 2007. In 2009, Brad and Andra purchased an oceanfront mansion in San Juan Capistrano, an exclusive community located along the California coast in Orange County. San Juan Capistrano was originally founded in 1776 by Father Junipero Serra, who established several Spanish missions in California with the goal of converting California's indigenous population to Catholicism. San Juan Capistrano was a beautiful place, and the Saxes' new home at 32265 Pepper Tree Bend was equally impressive. The six-bedroom, seven-bath, 9,200-square-foot home sat in a gated community on top of a one-acre hillside slope that afforded them panoramic views of the surrounding hills and the Pacific Ocean. The Pepper Tree Mansion included a home theater, wet bar, a gym complete with a sauna, as well as a swimming pool, spa, and pool house. The couple had paid just under $2.5 million for their new home. The Saxes were living out their American dream. They had wealth, a large thriving family, a beautiful home, business success, and profitable real estate investments. So it came out of the blue when a 911 call came in from the Saxes' home on 2.30 a.m. on February 9, 2014. The Saxes' 17-year-old daughter, Alexis, sobbed into the phone that there had been a shooting in her home and several members of her family were injured. When police arrived, they found 57-year-old Brad Sachs and 54-year-old Andra still in their bed. They had both been shot multiple times in the face and torso. Brad had been hit eight times and Andra seven. They were both dead. Alexis was unable to identify the shooter whom she had not seen, but only heard. She told officers that she didn't hear the shots coming from her parents' room as she had been asleep. She had awoken upon hearing her door kicked open and a shot being fired into her room. 
Miraculously, the bullet had missed her. Alexis hid in her bed, terrified, until she heard her little brother Landon crying. Running to his room, she found the eight-year-old sobbing and saying that he couldn't feel his legs. Doctors would discover that the little boy had also been shot. A bullet had pierced his spine, paralyzing him from the waist down. A third child had also been home at the time of the shooting, but was unharmed. 15-year-old Lana had been asleep on another floor of the home. The Saxes' two other children, 19-year-old Ashton and 21-year-old Miles, were both 1,200 miles away in Washington State, attending college and managing properties the family owned there. Homicide investigators concluded that the shooter, still unidentified, had entered the home and made his way to the master bedroom. He'd stood just a few feet from Brad and Andra when he fired a Ruger SR-22 semi-automatic rifle at them. After killing the couple, he next walked down the hall and fired a round into Landon's bedroom, hitting him once. Next, the shooter went back downstairs and kicked open Alexis's door, firing and missing before leaving the home. In total, 24 bullets were fired. Nothing was taken from the home, so robbery was ruled out as a motive. Who then could hold such anger and animosity towards Brad and Andra Sachs to commit such a brutal act? Investigators considered all the usual angles. Was Brad or Andra having an affair, and were the murders the actions of a jealous lover? There was no evidence for this theory, and it was quickly eliminated as a motive. However, when investigators looked into the Sachs' business affairs, they discovered that more than a few people might have had reason to target them. It took investigators some time to sort through all the friends, colleagues, and business acquaintances connected to the Sachs. Besides real estate holdings and businesses owned by the couple, Brad and Andrew both served as presidents or officers or were members of the boards of several other limited liability companies. Each one of these connections to them had to be investigated to identify a possible suspect in their murders. It appeared that the Sachs, and Andra in particular, had made plenty of enemies as a result of what was called her, quote, aggressive style of management. While the couple was going through their divorce, Flashcom awarded Andra the majority of the value of the company, but at the same time, removed her from its board of directors. The reason cited for this decision was said to be that Andra's management style, quote, could no longer be tolerated because it was hindering relations with customers, strategic partners, and vendors, end quote. Investigators also found that Brad and Andra Sachs were named as defendants in over a dozen lawsuits ranging from security deposits not being returned to tenants and their failure to maintain or repair their rental units. The problems cited by residents of these buildings included rotting floors, broken appliances, and faulty plumbing and heating. There was even a defamation suit filed by a contractor who claimed Andra had sent emails to other businesses he was associated with, blaming him personally for delaying one of her projects. The defamation suit was settled out of court. Investigators also found several angry posts from people doing business with the Sachs that made it clear that the couple was not well-liked. Quote, You hide behind your gated home with a dog patrolling the yard because you have screwed so many people over, read one. And, You will have to answer to God for the evil black-hearted witch that you are, read another. A third simply stated, Karma is a bitch. Even so, after thoroughly investigating the Sachs' civil and business disputes, detectives hit a dead end. 
Luckily, in the Saxes gated community, residents were serious about security measures, and there were several surveillance cameras recording the comings and goings on Pepper Tree Bend. One such camera had captured video of a white Toyota Prius driving up the road to the Saxes mansion in the early morning hours on the day of the murders. Detectives learned that the Saxes' second oldest child, 19-year-old Ashton, drove a white Prius. His alibi for the night his parents were killed was that he was in Washington State attending North Seattle Community College. Investigators decided to look more thoroughly into Ashton's alibi. The officer who had called Ashton to break the news that his parents had been murdered said that the teen had, quote, lost it when told his parents were dead. He was so distraught that the officer was afraid he might harm himself. Ashton Sachs had also given a moving eulogy at his parents' funeral. He told the mourners about a paper he had written for a school assignment when he was 13, describing his mother as a, quote, hero. Speaking of both his parents, Ashton said, As a kid, I really just always thought I had pretty awesome parents. I don't know how to sum up how or why they were so amazing and just perfect parents, other than everything they did was always for their children, end quote. Ashton had also been the one to sit with his injured little brother Landon in the hospital for hours, making sure the boy had everything he needed and comforting him as best he could. It was hard to believe this young man could be a suspect in the murders of his parents and the attempted murder of his siblings. But one by one, the pieces began to fall into place, with Ashton looking like the most likely suspect. Investigators gained access to Ashton's cell phone records for the days surrounding the shooting. It provided them with a map of his movements that proved he was in San Juan Capistrano on February 8th and 9th. They also discovered that he'd purchased an airline ticket for the date in question. They further uncovered surveillance footage from John Wayne Airport in Orange County that had recorded Ashton being dropped off by a taxi on the morning after the murders. The last link in the chain of evidence tying Ashton to his parents' murders was a call made from Ashton's cell phone to an auto transport company. Detectives learned that the teen had arranged to have his car transported from Orange County back to Seattle, hopping off his flight just in time to receive a phone call informing him of the shooting. Seattle police were contacted, who then located the Prius. Once it was searched, a 22 caliber rifle was discovered inside the trunk. Ballistics tests concluded that it was the weapon used in the murder of Brad and Andra Sachs. Detectives began to flesh out a profile of the 19-year-old after interviewing his friends and family members. While relatives of the Sachs described Ashton as the smartest of all the children and said he was charming and well-liked, some of his classmates told investigators that Ashton was picked on by other kids while in middle school and had difficulty fitting in with his peers. One of Andra's business associates, Monty Burghardt, who'd worked with her on a number of real estate deals, said he had been a witness to a, quote, mean streak in the Sachs' second-born child. He had a sadistic, warped sense of humor, Burkhardt told 48 Hours. He liked playing practical jokes on people, and he kind of terrorized people because they didn't know where it was going to come from. His brothers and sisters would always complain about that to their mom. They were practical jokes, but they always had a slant of torment to them. End quote. And there had been tension between Ashton and his parents in the months leading up to the murders. In 2012, Brad Sachs was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Brad's sister Lisa McGowan said that the illness hit him hard and his health declined rapidly. This, along with financial issues, 
was the reason the Sachs decided to downsize from their almost 10,000-square-foot mansion to a 2,100-square-foot home in Coronado. Andra also wanted to live in a home where everything was on one level to make it physically easier on her husband. A year earlier, Andra bragged to her sisters that Ashton was an A student who had taken an interest in computer technology. It was his plan to attend the University of California at Irvine and major in computer science. He even had aspirations of attending law school, Andra said. But after graduation, Ashton had spent most of his time obsessively playing computer games. Andra was concerned because he would sometimes stay up all night long gaming and smoking marijuana. He showed no interest in school or work, and Andra got into frequent arguments with her son about his idleness and lack of ambition. Then Ashton and his girlfriend broke up, and he took it very hard according to what Andra shared with her sister, Stephanie Garber. She confided that Ashton had attempted to kill himself by taking an overdose of OxyContin. After he'd done so, he called his mother to ask, quote, How many pills do I need to take to kill myself? Ashton spent 72 hours in a psychiatric hospital, but after his release, he received no further counseling or treatment. The tension between him and his mother continued. He'd enrolled in community college at his parents' insistence, but had dropped out without telling them. Just months before the murders, Andra texted the following to her son, quote, You are very ungrateful to a wonderful mother. I don't really owe you anything. You need to grow up, end quote. Andra was under considerable strain at the time, with her husband's health deteriorating, as well as financial concerns. The state of California had determined that Andra was legally responsible for paying almost 700000 in taxes for the sale of her Flashcom stock. In addition, after Flashcom went bankrupt, the trustees sued to recover the $9 million paid out to Andra, arguing that it had been an illegal preferential transfer. With all of these stressors, Andra would have had little patience for what she described as her slacker son. Then just two days before the murders, Andra and Ashton exchanged angry texts about the fact that he had forgotten his father's birthday the day before. I forgot his birthday just as much as he forgot he has a son, Ashton shot back in a text reply. Andra responded with obvious hurt and disappointment. Wow, no he doesn't. He loves you very much, she texted her son. All of this to investigators pointed to motive, means, and opportunity for Ashton to kill his parents. They decided it was time to bring Ashton Sachs in to confront him with all the evidence they had gathered, pointing to him as their main suspect. On March 6, 2014, detectives traveled to San Diego County, where Ashton was now living with his surviving family members. He and his older brother, Miles, had moved into a second home that the Sachs had purchased not long before they died. It was a much smaller home than the Pepper Tree Mansion, but still located near the beach in Coronado, California, and had cost $1 million to purchase. Miles and Ashton were now living together in the house and caring for their younger siblings. Investigators Justin Montano and Mike Thompson arrived unexpectedly wanting to take their suspect by surprise. They asked Ashton again about his alibi that he'd been in Washington when his parents were murdered. He continued to stick to the story. They then began to lay out the evidence they had, proving he'd been in Southern California during the critical hours leading up to, during, and after the murders. When he realized he'd talked himself into a corner, Ashton clammed up. But he didn't ask for an attorney, so they continued to press him for details, finally asking, when you put the gun in the car to come down to Orange County, what were you thinking? Ashton, in a low voice, began to confess, answering, quote, 
shoot them, and then kill myself, end quote. Investigators had also uncovered evidence that Ashton purchased the weapon in Seattle. They asked him for details about his trip to Southern California. He told them he'd arrived at his parents' house around 2 a.m., took the rifle out of the trunk of his car, and entered the silent house. He paced downstairs for, quote, like 10 or 15 minutes, before finally heading upstairs, entering the room where his parents slept, and began firing into their bodies. He then described walking past Landon's bedroom, stopping and firing the gun towards his little brother. Ashton then headed downstairs to Alexis's room and fired off a single shot before running out of the house. He got in his car and drove to a business park where the Sachs's office was located. Once there, he called a cab company to drive him to John Wayne Airport. Ashton said he arrived at the airport just after 3 a.m. Investigators got him to admit that he'd worn gloves on the night of the murders. They asked him if his plan, as he claimed, was to kill his parents and then himself. For what reason did he wear gloves? What would it matter if he left fingerprints if he was dead? Ashton didn't have an answer for this. And what about his motive? Ashton pointed the finger at his parents for his own lack of ambition and aimlessness. Quote, I was so fucked up because of my parents, he told investigators. He complained that his parents never trusted him with anything and that Miles was their pet or the favorite child. Of his mother, he said, I always thought she was like the only person in the world who really I could trust, but she didn't care about me. And his dad? He never really liked me or just loved me. We were never close. He was mean to me and would try to exclude me from things, Ashton claimed. Things had blown up between him and his mom when she discovered he'd stopped attending classes in Seattle. But to investigators, money didn't appear to be a motivation in the shooting. Ashton said his parents had always told them that they were going to leave the bulk of their fortune to charity. Brad and Andrew wanted their children to be self-sufficient and not rely on a handout or an inheritance from them. They'd pay for them to go to school, they told their children, giving them an opportunity to create their own futures. No, there was no money at all, he told investigators. It was mostly about revenge, investigators thought. Ashton decided that he'd been slighted by his parents, who, in his mind, didn't love him or even care about him. Miles, Ashton believed, would take over the family's businesses and investments, and he himself would end up being left out in the cold. But why attempt to kill his siblings, then? Jealousy, the prosecutor would theorize, plain and simple. Before concluding the interview, detectives wanted to know what had finally caused him to make up his mind to pull the trigger and end his parents' lives. I just thought I had to do it, Ashton answered, because I felt that they had fucked me up really bad and it's their fault. Before I killed myself, I felt like I should do it. Ashton Sachs was charged with two counts of premeditated murder and two counts of attempted murder. A trial date was set, and in May of 2014, he pled not guilty. But a year and a half later, now 22 years old, Ashton Sachs accepted a plea deal, pleading guilty to two counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder in a special hearing before a judge. On October 14, 2016, Sachs was sentenced to four consecutive life terms plus more than 100 years for additional penalties. He has no possibility for parole. At the time of his sentencing, he was asked if he wanted to make a statement, but declined. He was sent to Chuckawalla State Prison in Riverside County, California. Ashton's aunts, Stephanie Garber and Leslie Summers, visit Ashton in prison. They say they don't condone what he did, but their sister loved her son 
and they would like to try and understand what made him do something so terrible and ruin so many lives in the process, including his own. We could conclude that Ashton Sachs experienced a great deal of trauma during his lifetime and never received help to process any of it, which may have contributed to his warped thought process. The accidental drowning of his baby sister when he was just five years old, the breakup of his parents' marriage and their contentious divorce, his father's illness, and his own suicide attempt were all serious issues that seemed to be met with an attitude of power through and move on by the Sachs family. Andra herself admitted that the family didn't get the help and support they very much needed after Sabrina's death, but neither did they do so when other difficulties arose in their home later on. After his suicide attempt, Ashton said he came to the conclusion that his parents didn't care about him, describing their attitude about this incident as, quote, no big deal. While this may not be true, it is true that he received no treatment or support beyond the 72 hours he spent in the hospital. A few months later, he was sent to Seattle. His parents had provided him with a place to live and enrolled him in college, but he was living alone and felt isolated and cast off by his family. Ashton Sachs, in my opinion, never developed coping skills and instead immersed himself in one obsessive activity after another, smoking pot, gaming. It was reported that he'd logged over 1,800 hours online playing League of Legends and World of Warcraft, or obsessing over a relationship with a girlfriend. These were all distractions to what was really going on inside his head, a storm of chaos. And there was one other topic Ashton had become obsessed with as a teen, the murders of Jose and Kitty Menendez by their sons Lyle and Eric. In 1996, Kitty and Jose were gunned down in their Beverly Hills mansion as they sat eating ice cream and watching television. Their murders remained unsolved for months until detectives became suspicious of their two sons, who were spending lavishly with the inheritance received from their parents' estate. Eric and Lyle Menendez were ultimately tried and convicted for the murders. Ashton had even written a college paper about this crime and bragged about it to his parents, saying he'd received an A for the essay. His aunts would later find that strange, since Ashton consistently received A's for all his assignments. But this specific paper, they said, he was particularly proud of. While Ashton Sachs did experience trauma during his early life, so did his siblings, and yet he's the only one serving a life sentence for a violent crime. His sisters, Alexis and Lana, both attend college. His brother Landon gets good grades in school and even plays basketball on a team with others who are confined to wheelchairs. Miles put his own college career on hold to become the primary parent for his younger siblings. It's possible that Ashton Sachs simply felt he was entitled to be taken care of by his parents and became angry when he was told he'd have to make his own way in life. There are many teens and young adults who balk at growing up, perhaps distracting themselves like Ashton did with things like gaming or other interests to avoid the realities of adulthood. In this respect, Ashton Sachs was not unique. But add to this scenario his non-existent coping skills, lack of emotional support, and an obsession with an eerily similar case of parricide, and we may be able to come up with a workable theory of why this shocking act of violence occurred. But we can only guess. Because to this day, when Ashton Sachs is asked what motivated him to kill his parents, his answer is always the same. I don't know. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What do you think Ashton Sachs' motivation was for killing his parents? You can always share your feedback, ask questions, or suggest future episodes by following us on social media. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod, 
on Twitter at Upon a Crime, and on TikTok at OUACPod. The links to all our social media accounts can be found on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. You can also find out about upcoming events and appearances on our social media. CrimeCon is coming to London this June, and I'll be there to meet you on Podcast Row. Get all the details at crimecon.co.uk, and make sure to use my discount code, onceupon 22 to get 10% off your registration, and I'll see you there. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. Research for this episode was provided by Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>